This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Welcome to our podcast on the uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm, or Tripoli. So with me today, we have a special guest, Dr. Adam Beck, who's professor of surgery and division chief of vascular surgery at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. So Adam, you know, thank you very much for joining us today, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Well, each year, approximately 200,000 people in the U.S. are diagnosed with abdominal aortic aneurysm, or AAA. It's estimated that more than a million people are living with an undiagnosed AAA. In 2019, aneurysm and rupture were responsible for over 17,000 deaths. The number of aortic disease has been increasing over time, particularly due to aging population, better diagnostic modalities, and increased awareness. Aortic aneurysm are broadly classified by their anatomic involvement, with AAA being the most common and most likely to be caused by atherosclerosis. Left untreated, abdominal aneurysm can rupture and carry a mortality of more than 90%. The clinical burden coupled of the often silent, insidious, and unpredictable nature of aortic disease necessitates better clinical understanding of the mechanism of the disease and the modifiable risk factors. So Adam, let me, let me fire up a couple of questions you know, for you. If you could define for us what is an aneurysm and why does an aneurysm form and why the abdomen? Um, an aneurysm is basically a weakening in the wall of the blood vessel, which allows the blood vessel to balloon up, if we put it in the simplest terms. Um, there are a few different types of aneurysms that are basically described based on their shape. So basically, you can have an aneurysm in any blood vessel in your body. The most common places to have aneurysms are, are in the brain, uh, in the arteries in the brain. Um, the second most common place is in the aorta. The aorta is the largest blood vessel in your body or the largest artery in your body anyway. Um, and the most common place in the aorta is in the abdominal aorta, as you said, and about 80 or 85% of aneurysms are below the renal arteries, the arteries to the kidneys. Uh, there's a number of different theories about why the abdominal aorta is more common than other portions of the aorta. Uh, one of which is the, the content of elastin in the wall of the aorta. So if you look at the thoracic aorta, it has a lot more elastin in the wall than the, um, in the abdominal aorta. There's also uh, some small blood vessels that actually provide blood flow to the arterial wall itself. They're called vasovasorum. And um, for whatever reason, there's uh, much more vasovasorum in other portions of the aorta than there are in the abdominal aorta. And so some investigators think that that sort of less density of, of blood flow to the wall of the artery makes it more likely to dilate over time and more uh, more susceptible to the damage that can be caused by atherosclerosis. How frequently is that? How common is it in, in men and, and in women? Uh, much more common in, in men than women. Um, uh, it can be upwards of, of 5% of men. Um, and it, it depends on a couple of different things. Really, the most, the most common risk factor or the, or the most prominent risk factor is smoking. So we see aneurysms much more commonly in smokers. There's also a genetic component to it. So if you have a male relative, you're much more likely to have an aneurysm, uh, or I should say a first-degree uh, male relative, you're more, much more likely to have a, a, an aneurysm. Um, women who smoke, also more likely than women who don't smoke. It's, it's upwards of, of four to six times more common in men than it is in women. And uh, it also happens at a later age in women on average than it does in men. So uh, if we were um, screening people, we would we would really focus on men that have been smokers at some point in their life. So uh, does does race protect you? I mean, or we're all subject to atherosclerosis and development of aneurysm. Yeah, um, there is a uh, an effect of of race. So if you, um, Caucasians are more likely to have aneurysms than uh, other races, but um, but it's certainly not. 
protective. So if you're a smoker and you have hypertension, uh, other atherosclerotic risk factors, then, then you certainly can get a, an aneurysm uh, no matter what your race. So let's say you have an, an aneurysm detected. We'll talk about it in a little bit, but let's say you have an aneurysm. What's the natural history? How, does, how do they evolve? Well, the most common, I'll start with when we find them. Typically, we find them incidentally, so that meaning that um, these they, they aren't symptomatic, so people don't know that they have them. So the most common way that we find them are when people get uh, CT scans or, or plain films, uh, at least I would say most commonly in my experience is when people are getting worked up for back pain. Uh, so they'll get a CT scan uh, or axial imaging of some sort, sometimes an MRI, and the aneurysm will be noticed incidentally. It's less and less common for us to find them on physical examination, which is probably multifactorial. One of the, one of the reasons we don't see them as commonly is because of the uh, the uh, obesity problem in the United States. So the bigger your abdomen, the more difficult it is to feel an abdominally work aneurysm, and the aorta is really closer to the spine than it is the than it is the uh, Enter part of your inner, of your um, abdomen, so uh, they're pretty difficult to feel sometimes, especially when they're small. The natural history of an aneurysm is to grow, and they and as they grow, the the risk of rupture does go up. So, uh, for a man, if the aneurysm is less than five and a half centimeters in diameter, it doesn't matter what the length is; it's the diameter that's what uh, uh, confers the rupture risk and, and, uh, below five and a half centimeters, the rupture risk is low. It's, it's probably less than, than 1% per year. Um, but as they grow, they do increase in, in, uh, uh, rupture risk as well. So as the over five and a half centimeters with the rupture risk is probably about 5% per year. And then as they get bigger, the rupture risk goes up and that's, and that's, uh, why we repair aneurysms is because of that risk of rupture. They present uh, by other manifestations, um, you know, sometimes like blood clots um, in the periphery or, or, or um, some, some kind of problem with erosion of adjacent structures, or is that pretty much you know, very rare? Certainly can. So the, the um, aneurysms do tend to have thrombus or, or clot that form along the wall of the aneurysm, and that is related to the dynamics of the blood flow through the aneurysm. Um, luckily, most of the time that clot doesn't go anywhere, so it, it, it can actually embolize uh, peripherally. And so, so, so very occasionally you'll have a patient come in with a, uh, what we call blue toe syndrome, where they'll have an embolus to their, uh, or a small blood clot that'll go into the toe and they'll come in with toe pain and, and toe uh, ischemia. And um, that will be the first symptom of their, of their uh, aortic aneurysm. Very rare though, but I, but I can say I have seen it. Um, we do uh, sometimes have patients come in with erosion into adjacent structures, as you mentioned, uh, also fairly uncommon, but, but um, uh, with really large aneurysms, they can actually erode into the spine itself, uh, which can cause chronic pain. Um, the, uh, and then um, they do sometimes come in ruptured when, when they weren't previously diagnosed. And, the, and um, that's, that's actually maybe one, more, one of the more common ways that we'll see them is, a, is um, when they present as a rupture. I guess size uh, really matters there. Uh, the larger, the, the more likely to rupture as well as to erode. Um, so uh, you mentioned that most of them are asymptomatic. Um, what kind of symptoms are we talking about uh, for people that come symptomatic from an aneurysm? They just come with belly pain or back pain or how do they present? Um, if it's unruptured and they have symptoms from it, uh, the, the most common symptom is just low back pain. Um, and that's just based on the location of the aneurysm, which is a tough problem because people that are at that age uh, very frequently have chronic low back pain anyway. And so it's easy to attribute the pain to the aneurysm, but most likely and um, when you fix the aneurysm, the, the uh, back pain is still going to be there because it wasn't ever related to the aneurysm. Um, and this is really one of the problems with, with aneurysms that they are asymptomatic. So they really can be, uh, somewhat of a silent killer because, uh, patients don't ever know they have it when they come in, um, with the, with the rupture. You know, if they rupture their aneurysm, that's usually uh, much more severe pain. Uh, it, it can cause flank pain, back pain. Uh, sometimes will people will have uh, groin pain, which is really a referred, um, pain related to the site of rupture that can be um, higher up in the abdomen that refers to the groin. 
So um, let's say you have someone with an aneurysm. Um, what's the typical workup? I mean, it all, I know it all starts by, by the physical exam. And you mentioned that in our patient population, not always that easy. Um, you know, in my career, I've felt a few aneurysms, you know, discovered by physical exam, but, but, but it's very rare. I guess, you know, they present to you in an abnormal um, ultrasound or CT in all day. It depends on the diameter of the aneurysm. So if we, um, first of all, I should mention that, that um, oftentimes when we get an aneurysm that's di diagnosed with plain films of the abdomen that are done just to look at the spine, um, because of the, the um, physics of the uh, radiation that we use to image the spine, the, the uh, aneurysm will look much larger than it actually is. And so sometimes we'll get this frantic call about a very large aneurysm and the patients will be told that it's you know, an, an enormous aneurysm, they may get told that it's eight or nine centimeters. And then we get uh, much better axial imaging, imaging, which is uh, a CT or computed tomography scan. And, uh, and we'll tell the patients, well, this isn't even large enough to fix. And then they often will get these kind of conflicting ideas about what to do. And uh, they should know that CT scans are a much better way to look at this. And in 2021, really the best way to look at an aneurysm is a CT arteriogram. Uh, which allows us to do a, a three-dimensional reconstruction of the aorta and get a very accurate size. Um, now, when the aneurysms are small, when they're less than five centimeters in a man, we may just do ultrasound as their as their primary uh, imaging follow-up because uh, it's a great way to surveil the aneurysm when they're small. Now, as they get closer to five, five and a half centimeters, it's not the most accurate way to um, measure it, and it is somewhat subject to the person who's actually performing the ultrasound, the CT scan is a much more objective way to look at the, um, to look at the aorta and get an accurate size. Um, if we are working somebody up to, to actually repair the aneurysm, I would typically do a CT arteriogram as a rule, uh, in those patients and, and, um, would evaluate the entirety of their aorta because they do have a five to 10% risk of having, uh, an aneurysm somewhere else in their aorta. So they can have, a ascending aneurysm, which is close to the heart, which you may not see on the, uh, on an abdominal or, or pelvic CT. And you certainly wouldn't see it on an ultrasound of the abdomen. I guess CT is your main, um, your main diagnostic tool. Uh, you know, you want to get an idea of the whole aorta as well as its relationship with the renal artery, which is, you know, we pretty much can help and dictate how you can fix them, isn't it? Right. So the um, a three-dimensional reconstruction allows us to get a really good assessment of the of the anatomy of the aorta with relation to uh, the branch vessels in the abdomen, which include the renal arteries, as you said, but also the celiac and superior mesenteric artery, um, which are the uh, arteries that provide blood flow to the intestines. And we really need to know that um, for their uh, repair, especially a minimally invasive repair, which is which is very much dictated by um, the, their anatomy. And then in addition to that, we also get a really good assessment of their iliac arteries, which are and the femoral arteries, which is what we would use to access the aorta and deliver the devices. So we need to know whether we can actually get the devices into the aorta and repair their aneurysm. Uh, Adam, I know you're, uh, let's talk about management maybe a little bit. I know you're a surgeon, but you know, you really uh, care for the whole patient. And a lot of times I think you're involved um, maybe adjusting some of their medical therapy. What kind of medical management, aside from, I guess, maybe working on their risk factors, um, you know, can, can we do in these patients? Um, it's going to be an important part of your therapy, isn't it? Absolutely. So the, um, maybe we could talk about the risk factors. First, I, I would say that probably the majority of the aneurysms that we see, we see them when they're small. Um, and at that point, uh, really the patients are in the driver's seat in a lot of situations um, in, in the sense that they can actually modify the natural history of these aneurysms by changing some of their uh, lifestyle, uh, improving some of their risk factors, primarily smoking. I spend a lot of time talking about smoking cessation in my um, clinic. Like I said, it's, it's actually fairly rare that we see patients that uh, have never smoked who have any aneurysm. Um, we didn't talk about patients with connective tissue disorders. Maybe we could talk about that in a moment, but, um, for patients that smoke, the most important thing that they can do is quit smoking, which is really easy for me to say and hard for them to do. It's a very addictive 
drug, nicotine, but never in the history of time has anybody died from quitting smoking. So they, they're not going to die if they do it. Uh, but it is quite difficult to do. But I spend a lot of time talking to them about that. I do try to help people quit smoking. Um, I can't make them quit, but I, I typically will uh, treat them. Uh, my personal regimen is to treat them with Wellbutrin and nicotine um, replacement with patches. Uh, I spend a little bit of time talking about that. We talk about hypertension and making sure that their blood pressure is well controlled. I personally try to get people to keep a a blood pressure log that they actually bring with them to clinic so I can look and see what their blood pressure looks like at home and not just when they're at the doctor's office and stressed. Um, they uh, should all be on a statin and antiplatelet therapy, which doesn't do a lot for the aneurysms, although there is some thought that statins may actually decrease the rate of aneurysm growth. Uh, but statin antiplatelet therapy does improve their long-term outlook on their health because it does decrease their cardiovascular morbidity and mortality uh, down the road. How about beta blockers? Is there actually some decrease in the rate of progression of the aneurysm or has it been validated clinically? Or? Well, you know, there was a, a years ago, probably about 10 or 15 years ago, there were some trials that were, uh, that ended up being a little bit debunked with, um, uh, beta blocker therapy and, and long-term cardiovascular risk. And uh, for some of the quality improvement that we did in vascular surgery, we start we started patients on uh, beta blockers fairly routinely. And that has largely been, uh, again, debunked because it looked like there, we may be uh, causing some harm. Now, if they needed to be on beta blockers for their blood pressure control, absolutely, we do that. But we don't um, we don't start them on beta blockers any longer as a primary treatment for their aneurysm. Right. So I think that that medical management uh, is important, no matter what you do to the patient, and, and does add a lot of uh, benefit even to the um, the surgery or the procedures that you do, and keep that keep that um, you know treatment um, long lasting and have, because a lot of these patients die not so much of the aneurysm or the peripheral vascular disease, but of cardiac mortality, don't they? Right. I mean, more people die with aneurysms than die of aneurysms. And, and so um, it is something that we have to we have to keep in mind. And, you know, it may be a little bit demoralizing as a surgeon to say this if you if you really you know put too much emphasis on fixing the aneurysm. But, um, but the truth is, is if I can get somebody to quit smoking, um, take a statin and antiplatelet therapy like they, sh they should, I can probably impact their long-term health much more by doing that than by fixing their aneurysm. And I tell people that all the time. They really fixate on, you know, us getting a repaired aneurysm, but the other parts of this are, are equally or maybe more important. Yeah, probably help your surgical results as well. Well, Absolutely. Let's, let's talk about um, the our surgical, or let's say our treatment options that we have in the OR or in the hybrid hybrid room, you know. First of all, so you've been watching, you know, these people uh, with aneurysm for years. What are the clinical the indications um, for you to say? Well, I think it's time to move on, and and maybe um, it's time to intervene. What do you watch for? Um, well, if I maybe I can just uh, I'll tell you that what I tell the patients in clinic, and I and um, and and if people listen to this and then come see me in clinic, they'll 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 have a little deja vu. But basically, I, I do I make the same decision process for every patient every time, and it makes it easier for me. And I this is most of what I do is fixing aneurysms. Um, the the first part that I consider is what's the risk of doing nothing. You know, what if I leave this aneurysm alone? Uh, and watch it over time. The second part is, is what's the patient like? You know, how old are they? How are, are, are they frail or pre-frail? Uh, what do I think their quality of life is? More importantly, what do they think their quality of life is? And thirdly, what's the risk of, of doing something? So if I decide to intervene, uh, what is the risk of the procedure that I need to do in order to fix it? And then as I tell all of my patients, I put those three things together and everything I do always has to pass the mommy or daddy test. You know, what would I tell my mom or dad to do if they were sitting in that, you know, that clinic chair with the same uh, issues and the same aneurysm? And uh, that makes it an easier decision for me sometimes. So just to go through those things, um, the risk of doing nothing really depends on the diameter of the aneurysm, the gender of the patient, and where it is in their body. So if we're specifically talking about infrarenal aneurysms, the you know, if we if we kind of stick with the theme of a 
male patient, we would say a five and a half centimeter aneurysm has about a 5% risk of rupture per year. So if they live for 12 months after that CT scan and their aneurysm is five and a half centimeters, we would say 5% risk of rupture. So if we were going to go to Las Vegas and make a bet about whether their aneurysm was going to rupture or not, we would say we would definitely bet that it wasn't, right? It was a 95% chance that it won't. The problem is if it does rupture, they'll die from that. You know, that, that most people don't make it to the hospital when their aneurysm ruptures. Um, if it was a woman, we would say that around five, uh, a little bit over five centimeters, we would give them the same prognosis. Um, the second part of that equation is, is what is the patient like? So, you know, the patient may be 80 years old, but they may also still be running triathlons or, you know, marathons twice a year at 80 year old, or they may be laying on their deathbed from COPD or heart disease or cancer. And if we, you know, somebody had a, a, a terminal diagnosis from cancer, it would make no sense for me to pull them off their deathbed and do some crazy operation on them and then put them back on their deathbed only for them to go on and die from that cancer. So they have to realize that they're going to be the same person when we fix their aneurysm uh, at the end of that procedure, hopefully not the same person with you know some horrible complication of whatever the procedure is that we've done. And that's the third part of that equation is what's the risk of doing something. And so that there can be very straightforward aneurysms uh, that, that we can do an endovascular repair on that may have a mortality of 1% at the time or less with the procedure, or it can be a really, really complicated open operation, uh, you know, a thoracoabdominal aneurysm that involves the branches to the intestines and kidneys and their morbidity or mortality from that operation may be much higher than that. And we have to put that into the equation as well. So that's for uh, mostly the asymptomatic ones. I mean, you pretty much watch the, the size and, and, um, and related to comorbidities, um, look at the patients per se and treat the patient, uh, not only right. the aneurysm. Uh, if they're symptomatic, it's a little different, isn't it? Right. So if they're symptomatic or, of course, if they're ruptured, the decision process is, is different. So um, if someone's ruptured and we don't treat that aneurysm right then, then they're going to die from that. And, um, you know, the bottom line is, is I'm going to die from something one day and you're going to die from something one day. And, some, and dying of a ruptured aneurysm is not in and of itself a, a tragedy. The tragedy is, is if we've got a patient who has a lot of good quality life left to live and they die of a ruptured aneurysm, then that's absolutely a, a tragedy. And so sometimes patients come in with a ruptured aneurysm and they may have been at a nursing home with dementia on oxygen and, you know, and, and uh, the family knows, Hey, this is, uh, this is okay. You know, if they, if they pass from a ruptured aneurysm, if it's somebody that was walking on this, you know, walking their dog on the street with the grandkids and they're otherwise healthy and they rupture their aneurysm and they come in with a contained rupture, then that person, we need to get them fixed and we take them right into, right to the operating room. And, um, that may be a minimally invasive repair. It may be an open surgery. It, it's a, a much different decision process. And, and as I mentioned before, it's a, it's a different decision process with a very large aneurysm too. You know, those, those patients, they have a high rupture risk and, and uh, may need to get treated very quickly. Uh, we do believe that patients that are symptomatic or have rapid growth of their aneurysm, so if they grow more than five millimeters in a six-month period, we do believe those patients have a much higher risk of rupture and we may treat them more urgently. So uh, now you have the choice of treating them, which is you know the surgery versus the endovascular technique. And we know that you know, since since you have those techniques, endovascular techniques has really change the management of, of uh, aortic abdominal aneurysm. Enough evidence that you can fix uh, the benefits of, I guess we'll call it endovascular repair, EVAR, in elective or even in med emergency uh, cases. Most patients that have suitable anatomy will do great with low mortality, but it's not everybody that is suitable, you know, for this type of repair. What goes in the equation? Um, you know, how do you decide? You know which one should undergo surgery, which one should undergo endovascular repair or EVAR. It's um, part of it is an anatomic decision, um, meaning the anatomy of their aorta, uh, and some of it is a durability question. And so, if you have a very young patient who is otherwise, and and for me, very young is someone that's in their fifties or sixties, and they're and they're quite healthy. 
that person may live 20, 30, even 40 years after we treat their aneurysm. And, and that's really asking a lot of a, a device that's made out of metal and fabric. And, um, and, and it's also asking a lot of their aorta uh, to sustain, you know, a seal and fixation of that device over 30 or 40 years. Um, we do, uh, as I just alluded to, there the what we need to obtain a, an adequate repair is we at the, at least at the time of the operation is we need seal above and below the aneurysm because we're not cutting the aneurysm out, um, and we need fixation of the device so it needs to stay put and not move after we put it in there, um, and so we want to make sure that we seal the aneurysm into good quality, uh, hopefully normal aorta um, where the proximal part of the device is and um, in the iliac arteries usually uh, for the distal device. Um, if it's a much younger patient, as I just alluded to, and we know they're going to live for many, many years, the portion of the aorta that we've sealed into could become aneurysmal over time and we may lose that seal and fixation. And so we may lose durability of the device because of that. So the decision is not just anatomic, it's also durability. If the patient does not have anatomy that is amenable to an infrarenal repair, meaning the device is going to land below the renal arteries, uh, there are endovascular technologies that allow us to still repair these aneurysms. They're called branched and fenestrated endovascular devices, and those are, um, for the most part, are custom-made devices that have holes and branches that essentially let us reline the portion of the aorta that has branches, providing blood flow to the intestines and kidneys. Um, those are much more complex repairs, and so they're a little bit riskier repairs than an infrarenal um, repair. Um, sometimes we can't um, get the device in there, as I alluded to earlier, so they may have atherosclerotic disease in their pelvis, or they may have really tortuous vessels. Uh, those things go into that decision process, too. Um, and then, uh, as you alluded to, we also have to look at the patient, if the patient had uh, good cardiac function, uh, no active coronary disease, they, they don't have um, severe uh, emphysema, they may tolerate an open surgery. And so if, the, if, if it's not a straightforward minimally invasive repair, sometimes the best thing to do is an open surgery, which we still do a lot of. Um, I do both uh, open and endovascular repairs. So I do, as I said earlier, I do try to do what I would tell one of my family members to do in that situation. And, and um, uh, with that decision process, the, uh, we we typically get good outcomes. Thankfully, sounds good. So let's say um, let's say you need to operate on me. I'm, you know, I'm 65. I've got an aneurysm, and um, um, you, you're going to schedule my surgery. I'm going to uh, to UAB next week. What, how, can you kind of walk me, you know, through it as the patient? What is going to happen when I kind of check in? Uh, what happens in the OR, and you know, what is the recovery? time and so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, if you kind of start in the clinic, I guess I would, the, the first thing, if you came and got a CT scan, or, or let's say maybe more commonly, I'll walk you through this. If somebody sent me a CT scan ahead of time and it was a really straightforward infrarenal repair, when I brought you to clinic, I probably would just, would just bring you directly to clinic and talk to you about those, that CT and what, you know, what it would look like to get a, a minimally invasive repair versus an open surgery. Um, at 65, uh, you know, you're a healthy guy. I still consider you a, a young person. And so I, you know, you, I would talk to you about the durability of that repair and, uh, whether, you know, I thought you should get an open versus a minimally invasive surgery. Most of the time I would put it in your hands. So I'd give you the risks, benefits of both. And I, and I tell you, here's the, you know, here are the options and then this is, you know, and, and I don't really twist your arm to go one way or the other. If you had um, anatomy that was not straightforward for a minimally invasive repair, I would probably have you have an echocardiogram the day of your procedure, which would give me some idea of what your cardiac function looks like and, and an EKG. So I could look and see if you have any um, maybe um, hidden uh, coronary disease that you didn't know about or, or if you'd had an MI uh, uh, heart attack before. Um, and that, you know, if you had any d diminished cardiac function, that might push me towards a minimally invasive repair versus an open surgery. I'm in the clinic, but now you're scheduling me for um, surgery. Um, what should I expect? Yeah, so if you were going to get a... Um, 
minimally invasive repair. We usually bring you in the morning of surgery. Uh, you you uh, check in. I, I see all my patients before they go back to the operating room. Um, if you're getting a minimally invasive repair, we have, uh, like most big uh, modern hospitals, we have hybrid operating rooms, as you alluded to before. The hybrid means that we can do minimally invasive procedures with advanced imaging uh, or an open surgery in the same room. That's all that means is we can do both uh, open and minimally invasive surgery in the same room. Um, we, we use some uh, advanced 3D overlay imaging for my minimally invasive repairs, which mean that we can actually fuse your preoperative imaging to your intraoperative imaging and we can it's essentially like playing a video game because we can overlay your anatomy with uh, uh, your intraoperative imaging which is um, which makes the repair much more straightforward um, if you were getting a straightforward infrarenal uh, stent graft you uh, usually get that done through small uh, about one centimeter incisions in your groin you, I, I do it under general anesthesia mostly because patients are want to be uh, comfortable and the using the 3d overlay imaging we have to keep them perfectly still um, if the procedure goes well most people go home the next day so we get them out of bed and they walk around and then and as long as they uh, do well we send them home the next day if they get a more complex uh, branch fenestrator repair it really varies from anywhere from uh, two days to up to five or six days in the hospital for people that get uh, procedures like thoracoabdominal repairs, which is kind of a whole uh, different can of worms to talk about. Um, if you were getting a uh, infrarenal open aortic repair, we usually place uh, thoracic epidurals in the morning. Uh, our regional pain specialist put in uh, epidurals prior to the procedure to help with uh, postoperative pain control. And people are on average are in the hospital somewhere around six to eight days after a procedure like that. Uh, mostly awaiting uh, return of bowel function and control of their pain and uh, get them to a point where they can um, uh, eat regular food, uh, take a, a oral pain regimen and, and are ready to go home after the procedure. So, um, you know, so that's a long time in surgery and as well as in recovery, isn't it? I mean, it seems like if you do an endovascular repair, not only I'm home, you know, the next day, but probably back to work the following week versus mm -hmm. maybe uh, several weeks, um, you know, right. open surgery. Yeah. That's, that's a great point to make is that, um, what, what you, uh, what you achieve with a minimally invasive repair up front is lower morbidity. So low, less risk of complications, lower mortality, less risk of dying from the surgery. Uh, and you lose in durability. So if you, you know, if you uh, trade that upfront risk for uh, the, the uh, knowledge that your aneurysm is gone with an open surgery, that portion of your aorta has been replaced by a new tube, uh, cannot become aneurysmal again. Now the rest of your aorta can become aneurysmal over time, um, but your, um, the portion of your aorta where the aneurysm was is gone. And with a minimally invasive repair, the aneurysm is still technically there. Uh, but if we've got a good repair, the aorta will uh, remodel around that stent graft and the aneurysm will go away or at least stop growing. Um, we just, again, you know, hope that that uh, stent graft remains durable. It doesn't uh, fracture fatigue. Um, and then it stays, it stays in place and, and, um, and doesn't need any revisional procedures down the road. Um, if you live 10 years after a minimally invasive repair, you have about a 15% risk of needing additional interventions. Most of the time, those are to treat endoleaks, um, which is a whole different subject. I don't know if you want to get into that subject or not, but uh, endoleaks are, it's a really unfortunate choice of terms that the doctors have used for years since we created endografts, but uh, endoleak sounds like you're leaking blood out of your aorta, which is not what's happening. You're actually leaking blood into your aorta, into the aneurysm. Um, and um, uh, some endoleaks can be very benign. Some can be uh, dangerous and we we treat that we have to keep an eye out for those. You do have to get um, axial imaging, CT scans for the rest of your life to make sure that you don't develop endoleaks. And uh, uh, that's another trade off of open versus minimally invasive therapy. So if you have a EVAR or endovascular aortic repair, I usually get a, a 
CT scan one month after the procedure, six months, and then yearly thereafter. If you get an open surgery, if the rest of your aorta is normal at the time of your repair, I get another CT scan at three years after your repair. And if you have no evidence of any aneurysmal dilation of your aorta, then we ask that you get another CT about five years after that. So uh, less doctor visits if you get an open open operation. So all of the risk really is at the front end of that. Well, I think the endoleak is a problem. I think I had a patient of mine that I, I sent to you that had this one of this problem where the um, where the aortic uh, the abdominal you know sac kept, kept growing and. And, and I guess it's, it's sometimes it's where the graph is attached to the aorta or where it ends, or sometimes it's from these, um, uh, the, you know, you have the lumbar arteries that are coming from the back that are still kind of, you know, perfusing the sac. Um, how do, you know, it's, how do you control that? Right. So there, there are different types of endoleaks, just like you said. So the, um, as I mentioned earlier, for to get a successful minimally invasive repair, we have to have seal at the top of the graft, seal at the bottom of the graft, and fixation so the di- device doesn't move. So um, one type of endoleak is, is what we term a type 1 endoleak, and that is if you lose seal at the top or bottom of the graft. So there's a type 1A and a type 1B endoleak. Um, a type two endoleak is is just what you just mentioned is is leaking back into the aneurysm through branch vessels that have been covered by the the graft. So everybody has um, lumbar vessels that arise from the abdominal aorta. You also have something called an inferior mesenteric artery, which may be uh, open at the time of your repair, and all of those blood vessels can back feed into the aneurysm. A type 2 endoleak is, is uh, less dangerous. Most of those go away on their own, but sometimes they stay uh, open and sometimes the aneurysm will grow. Um, a type 3 endoleak is, is a, um, either a defect in the graft itself where you get uh, flow through the graft into the aneurysm sac, or you can have a separation of the components of the device if it's a modular uh, device, and most of them are modular. A type one and a type three endoleak are both dangerous. So if you were to just if you were to put a catheter into the aneurysm sac and measure a pressure, the pressure will be just like systemic pressure, and that and that endograft has done you no good. So you have the same rupture risk as if you hadn't had the aneurysm repaired at all. Um, and uh, and so those are endoleaks that we we usually try to treat very quickly if we can because they uh, because that patient is at risk of rupture. You put another graft, or what do you do? It depends. So if you have a, a type 3 endoleak where the components have separated or there's a hole in the graft, sometimes we can very simply just reline the endograft. Um, unfortunately, the, the type 1 endoleaks, especially type 1A near the top of the graft, uh, can be a much more challenging situation to, to fix. So we have to sometimes we have to extend more proximally in the aorta uh, it can be as simple as just putting a cuff that seals a little bit higher below the renal arteries. But most of the time when I see those patients, that's already been tried and we uh, have to um, line through the portion of the aorta that has branches to the intestines and kidneys and, and do a fenestrated graft, as I mentioned. Um, and more and more, we, we have endograft failures that, that require an open conversion, uh, meaning that we have to do an open surgery. Uh, take out all or portion of the stent graft and do and, and do an open surgery. And that, um, because of the the uh, all of the minimally invasive repairs that have been done over the years, there are a lot of patients walking around with stent grafts that are failing. And um, because the stent graft is in there, it can be a very challenging situation. Sometimes not uh, doable with the minimally invasive repairs. So sometimes we have to do an open surgery to treat that. So um, <clears throat> that's something obviously to balance in the equation, as you mentioned. Let's talk a little bit about the open surgical repair. I mean, it, it has a pretty low mortality also. I guess it, uh, you know, you do that in younger people that, you know, you feel in, in better shape. So the mortality is less than 2%, but you have, all, there can be complication also that, that can follow surgery. You can have pseudoaneurysm or graft infection. Have, you know, what kind of um, complication do you have and, and uh, how do we manage them? Um, there's kind of short and long-term complications of an open surgery. So um, and having good outcomes with open surgery is uh, very much 
predicated on on good patient selection. And so you you know as we talked about before, you know the I- ideal patient for an open surgery is a younger patient with um, less cardiopulmonary complication or morbidities. Uh, so they've got a good heart, good lungs, uh, good kidneys, and uh, those people usually do very well. And I would, I would, uh, in somebody that's got got cor- good cardiac function, no coronary disease, no COPD, uh, e- either as a quit smoker, never smoker, stop smoking at least a couple weeks before the surgery, um, I would I would quote them a one or two percent risk of mortality. Now. Uh, that patient is um, uncommon. So we very often see people that have COPD. They have uh, known coronary disease, have had coronary bypasses or coronary stents before. Uh, that's a much more common patient. And so uh, the more complex the operation and the more complex the patient, the higher risk of the surgery. Um, sometimes we can't do a minimally invasive repair. We just simply can't do it. And um, for, for a number of reasons, that some of which I've mentioned, and the only option may be a high-risk open surgery. And, and I have a very frank conversation with my patients about a high-risk open surgery and, and uh, what the risks are. Uh, but sometimes, you know, a high-risk surgery is better than the, you know, the risk of rupture, which may also be high-risk. Um, the early complications of an open surgery, if we have to uh, clamp above the renal arteries or above the intestinal arteries. There's a risk of renal failure around the top of the time of the operation. Um, uh, so p- patients can go have some kidney failure, which may be uh, short-term or permanent. It's most of the time it's short-term and most of the time patients don't require dialysis, uh, but you can. Um, bleeding because it's a big surgery and, and we do have to give blood thinners around the time of the operation. So patients can have post-operative bleeding. Uh, heart attacks. Uh, if we have to divide the diaphragm, uh, the risk of having pulmonary complications and ending up on a ventilator for a period of time is a risk, um, especially if the patient has COPD. Uh, that's actually one of the more common risks if, if uh, the patient has COPD and we have to uh, do a two cavity operation with uh, incision into the chest. Uh, so those are um, some of the early risks. Some of the later risks are things like a hernia and the incision. Uh, if it's a transabdominal operation, they can get adhesions in the bowel and get a bowel obstruction. Those are a kind of a five or ten percent risk over over time. Probably hernia is actually higher than that uh, because patients, especially if they continue to smoke, have a, a, a tendency to get. Uh, incisional hernias and people that have uh, AAAs have a, have a higher risk of getting incisional hernias than the average patient as well, um, probably because they have some, um, they have a, um, you know, some problems with wound healing or, or they're just, uh, their tissues are not as strong as the average patient. Problem with the weight, the obesity, diabetes, and right. PD really doesn't help. So these are difficult options, but overall, I think Great results and patient selection is so so important. Uh, so these are lay, uh, for the um, the chronic aneurysm. Uh, let's say for acute rupture. I mean, if, if I'm in the ER, I know my management would be to uh, insert two large bore IV and give you a call and probably get an <laughs> ultrasound. Uh, you know, I guess that's the best thing I can do. Uh, do you manage them mostly with endovascular now, or or do you prefer open, you know, surgery? You don't have that um, much time to evaluate them, do you? Right. So ruptured aneurysms come in a few different, in a few few varieties. Um, if they are a, a more local patient, you know, we live in a in a in an urban area, so we may get patients who come in with an infrarenal ruptured aneurysm, and and patients definitely do better with an endovascular repair if they have good anatomy. Uh, we can often whisk the patient off to the operating room and, and get a stent graft in within 30 or 45 minutes and, and get actually get control of their aorta much more quickly than that. Um, the, that's, that's sort of one flavor of, of clinical presentation. The more common thing that we see is a patient from, you know, three or 400 miles away who's got a very complicated anatomy. Uh, the, the doctors there don't think that they can get an endovascular repair, at least with an infrarenal device. Uh, but the patient, they, they are ruptured, but it's a contained rupture. So the tissue around the aorta is kind of contained the blood and they send them to us by, you know, they'll fly them to us 
patients, maybe a low blood pressure, but they're stable. And in those patients, sometimes we can do a minimally invasive repair uh, by modifying a device and, and creating a device that, that will fit their aorta. Um, and uh, it, we, we call those physician-modified endografts. Uh, and then also sometimes we, we do an open surgery for those. And I would say more commonly, we do an open surgery in that situation. Um, and believe it or not, you know, we get really good results with that. And I think part of the reason we get such good results is there's, is the patients have sort of self-selected, uh, you know, they survived their initial rupture. Uh, they've, you know, they've stayed stable for travel three or 400 miles. And, and, uh, and so, you know, they've kind of, they've kind of demonstrated that they're going to, you know, they're going to be, uh, able to, to tolerate an operation like that. Um, but the, you know, the risk of mortality after, after a emergent presentation like that is, is absolutely, uh, way higher than it would be if a patient comes in, um, electively. Well, I know you've done some special training in endovascular therapy, even, uh, you know, in the Netherlands, um, when you were doing your fellowship training and, um, you're still doing a lot of research, I think, in that field right, of trying to kind of build a new endovascular device, maybe to kind of fit, you know, particular patient anatomy and, and condition. Uh, what else is happening in research in that field? Um, there are, uh, all of that is true. There are a number of companies that are interested in um, producing branched and fenestrated devices. There is one device on the market that is a, a fenestrated device that is custom built for the patient's anatomy. Um, that device has a lot of engineering constraints. It's only intended for aneurysms immediately below the renal arteries, what we would call a juxtarenal aortic aneurysm. And so, uh, and the devices have to be custom made. And so they um, take two to three weeks to order and, and um, have the device available. So it's certainly not something that you could treat an urgent or emergent problem with. Um, we, for patients that have aneurysms above the renal arteries, there are a few trials that are ongoing, uh, by a couple of different device companies, um, that can be used to treat that type of aneurysm. Sometimes those are not, uh, the patient's anatomy is not amenable to a device like that. And so, uh, we, I have a, um, uh, investigational device exemption study that is a what's called a physician-sponsored investigational device exemption or IDE with the FDA that allows me to uh, both modify a graft if it's an urgent or emergent problem, like I mentioned earlier, uh, or order a device for those patients. Those devices can take upwards of two to three months to um, plan and obtain. Uh, they're built um, for the patient specifically in Brisbane, Australia. So they do take some time to get back from Australia and ready to implant. Um, but we do a lot of those and we can treat juxtarenal, suprarenal, and even thoracoabdominal aneurysms with uh, those devices. Um, and there's, so we've got, there's a lot of exciting things going on in the aortic repair world. This is um, the, the, there are also aneurysms that can develop in the, in the arch of the aorta. So where the branches to the uh, brain and arms come off of the aorta. Uh, that's really one of the sort of frontiers in, in aortic endovascular aortic repair. And we, we do have uh, some ongoing clinical trials for that as well. And so we, we do a, a reasonable amount of that at UAB. Um, those repairs are done uh, in collaboration with the cardiac surgeons at UAB. So we have a nice collaboration with them. Um, and, um, um, really there's not anything that you can do to an aorta uh, that we don't do at UAB. So I'm very proud of that. And uh, I think that if, you know, patients with really any uh, portion of their aorta diseased, um, we, we are certainly interested in seeing them. Yeah. I've seen some of the work that you've done with uh, Kyle Udaly on the, uh, using the elephant trunk, um, mm -hmm. you know, aortic prosthesis and thoracal um, abdominal aneurysm, pretty phenomenal. You, know, you can reconstruct a holy ortho. Well, you know, we've talked about the, the repair of these aneurysm. Obviously, um, when you get into the rupture, uh, very frequently it's too late. And um, so what we want to do, obviously, is increase awareness and try to detect those aneurysm, you know, earlier. Uh, and for that, we need to screen abdominal aortic aneurysm. What is the rec current recommendation uh, for screening our patients for aneurysm? 
not that much. So there, you know, there's a very specific patient population. So if you're, uh, if you're 65 year old man and you've uh, smoked more than a hundred cigarettes in your life, that's the, that's the patient that is recommended to get screening in the United States. So those patients will get a welcome to Medicare ultrasound of their abdominal aorta. Um, and the, you know, the pretest probability of aneurysms is highest in that population. Um, that said, that is not a, uh, adequate screening for a thoracic aortic aneurysm. You can't see the thoracic aorta in the, in the chest with ultrasound because of the lungs. Um, and if, if patients have a, uh, have a, a significant family history, so multiple first degree relatives who have aneurysms, I personally recommend that they get, uh, axial imaging, uh, of their entire aorta. And that may just be a non-contrasted CT of their uh, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Um, when they're the 50, 55 range, just to look for any dilation of their aorta. Um, also, if they have a, a history of, of both thoracic and uh, intracranial aneurysms in their family, that those can be genetically linked. And so we may want those patients to get screened. And then uh, the one thing that we haven't talked about much uh, that I alluded to earlier is connective tissue disorders like Marfan syndrome, Lowy Steets, Eller Stanlos, and then some uh, less common connective tissue disorders. If um, someone has a family history of those conditions, then it's a good idea for them to get their aorta screened as well. In women also, if they have the family history and, and they smoke? Yes. Um, you know, they won't get a free ultrasound uh, that way, but if they've got a significant family history of first degree relatives, so a brother, sister, mother, father, uh, grandmother, uh, grandfather, uh, if they have multiple family members that have had an aneurysm, especially if they smoke, it's a good idea for them to get to get screened. And they can uh, usually it would be their family practice doctor, or primary care physician that would uh, do that for them. Um, and uh, if they're thin, you know, they can just get a, a good physical exam, also get an abdominal exam. And, you, you know, in a thin person, you can actually feel the a normal aorta. Um, it's just, there's not, there's less and less thin people in the world, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly right. Well, Adam, I'm, I want to thank you very much. I know you're, you're, um, you're an incredible leader in, in your field. Uh, as a matter of fact, that really a lot of people have enjoyed already your YouTube segment, you know, on the abdominal aortic aneurysm, how you explain it, you know, very well. So I think this complements a lot and, and goes maybe a little bit more into detail of how, how you fix them everything you wanted to hear about the abdominal aortic aneurysm with Adam Beck. Um, thank you very much, Adam. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode. 